With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You made numerous threatening references to the UN. <laughs> the last two words were screw Flanders. <laughs> we have numerous threatening references to the UN. What is that from again? When he was working for the newspaper. Oh, right. And he was a restaurant. <laughs> I don't know why I know all this, but it's like stuff from the first 10 seasons is encyclopedic in my brain. And then today I'm actually having to film a video for my job. The, the actual thing that I physically have a college degree in, and I'm like, how does one edit? Well, I mean, when you got your degree, you know, they were still using film. Yes, I know how to edit on film. What of it? I guess that makes me a hipster. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, as we are back with yet another Let's Get Weird sports podcast here, midsummer as it's 90, 95 degrees outside, it's hot, it's humid, and you're listening to myself, Travis Miller of HammerandRails.com, and Paul Banks as we discuss another strange but true and funny, well, this one may have some moments that, or definitely has some moments that are not so funny parts about sports and everything that's happened over the last 100 and 150 years or so. So how are you today, Paul? Doing good, just staying cool. Uh, got the shirt on Otis because he was meowing too much, so when he wears his little shirt, it calms him down somewhat. Guns out, guns out for him. Oh yeah, he's definitely ripping out his little tank top. <laughs> Tonight we'll be discussing... Hotlanta when we're talking about the summer and specifically the 1996 Olympic Games which are some of the strangest Olympics that have happened in our lifetime just for kind of what was going on around it and some of the events that happened at it and then it was really kind of one of the first disposable stadium games as well so there's a lot to unpack here with this one and really goes all the way back to, I think it was 1991, when the city of Atlanta was announced as the winner of the Olympic Games. And my brother-in-law was living there, he was working for Delta Airlines at the time, and the city pretty much went absolutely crazy that they got the Games. And it was a huge moment in, oh, it looks like it was uh, 1990. Uh, It was a huge moment in the city's history, obviously, because kind of put them on the map as a major World Series. And uh, as Futurama once said, it was more than a Delta hub. (laughs) Yes, it was more than a headquarters for CNN and (laughs) Coca-Cola. I mean, Atlanta is not... to, To be fair, Atlanta is not the South. It's not really Georgia because it's such a transplant city and it's more modern, but... Then again, you just go to the Atlanta suburbs and you go just outside of it. And uh, it's the South, and we don't mean that in a good way. 
Well, and that's the thing is, I have been to Atlanta probably about half a dozen times. I have never been to Atlanta, if you will, because I'm either going through the airport, flying somewhere, or I've driven through it. I've never actually stopped in Atlanta and done anything in Atlanta. Well, I remember when I the one time I went was in 1993. You know, at that point, domes were still kind of not novel, but maybe there was like a handful in the country. And I never would have thought that the dome that I took a tour of, the Georgia Dome, would be... Here we are talking about the Atlanta Olympics just uh, a quarter century later, and it's already gone. Yeah, and, and both of the major stadiums, actually all of the major stadiums that were there for the uh, Atlanta professional teams have uh, since been torn down because you had the Omni, which, in, if I remember my Latin and Greek derivatives, translates to the All. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I like it. Let's do some classic civilization here on Let's Get Weird. Well, especially since uh, Atlanta did beat Athens, Greece out for what was the 100th Olympic game or the 100th anniversary of the first Olympics. And then, of course, you had the Georgia Dome, as you mentioned, has been long gone. I believe it opened in like 1991 or 1992 and has been gone a few years. And of course, you have Turner Field slash the Centennial Olympic Stadium. It is now in its third incarnation as the home of Georgia State football since the Braves moved to Cobb County on the outside of the city. You had an interesting uh, quote in our pre-planning pre, uh, meeting here that we had before we started recording, too. <laughs> That's uh, a good euphemism there. Yeah, um, we probably can't really uh, repeat it in regards to uh, certain people and uh, spouses that they have, but... <laughs> yeah, you could just say that like Atlanta, when it comes to professional sports teams, is um, you know it, it's like a very shallow, rich, famous older man. They like to uh, they like to keep trading in their um, let's I don't know, let's just say their toys. Keep keep updating. We'll go with that. Atlanta goes through stadiums faster than your aunt goes through husbands. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it, it, I mean, can you think of another MLB franchise where we've been alive to see them play in three different stadiums? Well, the the next one is going to be Texas because they are opening their new ballpark next year after uh, Globe Life Park is closing. Or I think they're moving like Globe Life Park from Globe Life Stadium or whatever. But the the bottom line is is they are building a new stadium because they suddenly discovered that yes, it's bloody hot in Texas in the summer. And they want a retractable roof stadium. Yeah, who could have figured that? Who would have known that August and July would be unbearably hot in Texas and running around in long pants would suck? The Rangers and the Braves are joining each other as teams that have left stadiums that they were in for less than 25 years. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, three stadiums within our lifetime. I think there might be a... I, I can't. Th- you're right. I can't think of another one there that uh, that that's happened unless the team has moved or something. Because I mean, that's the thing. Like we really have seen in our lifetime, there was the cookie cutter, ridiculously cylindrical round trend where it was the multi-use for football and baseball, and every stadium looked the same. And then, then it came with uh, Camden Yards, which you were just at. Yes, and, beautiful uh, stadium. 
it's actually my favorite ballpark of all that I've been to in the entire country. I love Camden Yard. Uh, or the Jake. It was kind of like the same time Jacobs Field did. Um, now it had to be the retro park. So then all these parks, it's like they took it down just because it wasn't hipster enough. It didn't look good. But, I mean, that's the thing. Like, giant sports stadiums aren't meant to be changed like outfits. Like, you don't. They're supposed to last 100 years or at least 50 years, not 25. And I know the, a big reason the Braves moved is that they wanted to, quote, move closer to their fan base in Cobb County. And so they basically built a new stadium because of a marketing report. <laughs> and really, that is going to end up being the theme tonight of this podcast. It's all going to be about marketing and advertising when we get down to it. They tend to premiere the next Olympics at the previous Olympics. So it really kind of all started in 1992 with the closing ceremony of the Barcelona Games when they debuted the Olympic mascot, Izzy, short for what is it? And he was aptly described as the sperm in sneakers. The sperm in sneakers? Yes. Uh, he See that. I actually had an Izzy. Uh stuffed animal figurine whatever it was called because we were in atlanta like a few weeks before the olympics happened as a kid i don't know where it is <laughs> not here creeping me in my closet or something uh it says that the animated character had the ability to morph into different forms and was a departure from the olympic tradition and that it did not represent a nationally significant animal or human figure which, I mean, if you think about it, it really does. Deep South can morph into different forms, fat, thin, whatever. I mean, that really is about perfect for uh, the Deep South and stuff. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, when you compare the sperm with shoes. <laughs> it's, it looks like a blue sperm with shoes and the Olympic rings on its tail. Well, that's good because everybody knows that shoes reproduce by... They reproduce asexually by virtue of fission or budding, so... You don't have. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We went by, we went high school level biology tonight. It is our goal to educate the masses whenever they stop by and they find the Let's Get Weird Sports podcast. Juan, how could you part ways with Izzy? How could you let this happen? It's somewhere. <laughs> it, it, it left on its own. As we know, Juan will be cuddling with Izzy tonight no. as he drifts off to sleep. <laughs> Move but on. Enough, but enough about blue sperm with uh, with shoes. Uh, as you said, this was basically the marketing Olympics, and you mentioned being in Atlanta just before the Olympics. One of the very first times that I traveled through Atlanta was roughly six weeks before these Olympics happened. I went on a high school German club trip because I had just finished my sophomore year of high school. And we flew back from Frankfurt to Atlanta, and we, we flew Delta the whole trip. And I swear that every announcement on the plane, on every flight, they had to end the... The Delta Airlines was the official airline of the 1996 Centennial Olympic Games in Atlanta. And that was all over the Atlanta airport. My first thought about the night, my, I'm not making this up. My first memory or the, or the memory that comes to mind first for these Olympics was a visa commercial because they ran this dumb ad campaign where it showed like 
rednecks and hillbillies on porches with banjos and they're just like it was trying a way to integrate cultures from all over the world using phrases like y'all and reckon and and they did actually during the opening ceremonies they had like this large group of cheerleaders that stood at a formation to say hey y'all and as we know george is not the best at trying to integrate things yes that's that's It didn't go well. Sorry, Logan. Oh, we're, just, yeah, we're just getting warmed up on that topic tonight. It's oh yes. Speaking of struggling to integrate things, uh, let's let's talk about one of the venues that they had, which is at Stone Mountain, Georgia. Which is, I mean, let's be honest, Stone Mountain, Georgia is pretty much just a monument to traders. Exactly. Now, yeah, this is something I'm I'm definitely an expert on. Um, I actually have Traders? been there. Scary. I mean, no, I'm I'm not a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but I am an expert on this nonetheless because the historical facts here. Uh, oh my God, this is just frightening. Yes, uh, I think the one that stands out to me the most is um, the Stone Mountain Park as a memorial to the Confederacy. Officially opened 100 years to the day of Lincoln's assassination. Yeah, that was the one I was going to go with, too. I was gonna... <laughs> let, you know, there's a lot to unpack, and let's let the unpacking begin. <laughs> it took close to a half century to complete the carving. Um, it is the largest boss relief in the entire world, and it's a monument to truth. And it's a monument to treason. Uh, it, it's basically the Confederate Mount Rushmore. Oh yeah, definitely. It's um, Robert E. Lee, uh, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis, who was the first and only president of the Confederacy. And you know, to be fair, the tour of the Confederate White House—that's in Richmond, Virginia. They they really do present him as the. That he was. So I thought that was, uh, thought they did a good job with that. Like they discussed how he let one of his kids play with like toy cannons and like another kid f- like died by falling off. It was just from neglect. It was from terrible parenting or something, just complete lack of responsibility. Um, Jefferson Davis really came off like when the North was coming to invade, he stopped to straighten up his desk and made sure it was clean. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like before they settled on the confederate flag it took like three or four different tries the first one looked too much like a surrender flag and the second one looked too much like a union flag so it's they kind of really did a good job portraying the confederacy for what it really was versus here in stone mountain uh wow but yeah. let's also mention that it is considered the sacred site to uh, the second and third incarnations of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, the second one was inspired by perhaps the most racist film in cinema history, Birth of a Nation. That is, um, I mean, it's right up there with Triumph of the Will in terms of just, oh my God, people actually made this and uh, believe in it and everything else. <laughs> And that's, that's what's really frightening is is the yeah the modern Ku Klux Klan was born atop this mountain and I believe it was by some racist redneck idiot had an altar with an American flag a Bible and a burning cross 
Ah, jeez. It's really nice to see that over the past 150 years or so that we've gotten rid of all the racist assholes out there. As part of their ceremony, they set up on the summit an altar covered with a flag, opened a Bible, and burned a 16-foot cross. William J. Simmons was the guy who did this. At Stone Mountain was the location of an annual Labor Day cross-burning ceremony for the next 50 years. So that's in 19 so that's up until 1965. It didn't open until 1972 and it was dedicated by then Vice President Spiro Agnew who and I'm not making this up said the three men had honor, dignity and loyalty. <laughs> Tennis, cycling and archery were all performed in Stone Mountain Park. Yes, because uh, they they had some of the venues there, and uh, yeah, it just uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Stone Mountain itself is tiny. It, it's only six thousand people, so people really don't go there unless they go to the park, which is the most visited tourist attraction in the state of Georgia. Uh, your and uh, your tennis events were. Won by Andre Agassi on the men's side and uh, Lindsay Davenport on the women's side with Gigi and Mary Jo Fernandez winning women's doubles and Todd and Mark or Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodford of Australia winning the men's doubles. When you think about the Atlanta Olympics, what really is the signature sports moment? Um, I would I would have to say uh, Michael Johnson doing the 200-400 double, and I believe I want to say that he set. Uh, world records in both at the time, uh, which was, I mean, it was a huge deal that he was able to win gold in both. Uh, but that's the one that kind of stands out to me. Oh, and of course, the uh, the famous Kerry Strug vault to give the American gymnastics team the gold. And then probably, oh yeah, that was the, that's pretty much the golden era. I mean, American gymnastics has always been but, you know, I really think of 96 as when they were really at their peak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also the first time uh, Olympic medals were won by athletes from Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Burundi, Ecuador, Georgia, Hong Kong, Kazakhstan, Moldova, Mozambique, Slovakia, Tonga, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan. Thank you, Mr. Thanks for Herman, Herman Cain there. Herman Cain, Purdue alum. So is that where was Godfather's Pizza started then? Oh, I have no idea, but Godfather's Pizza is garbage. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty terrible. Having it once is enough. There was a really uh, powerful moment, and in a good way, at this Olympics. In fact, uh, Bob Costas, who's covered more Olympics than pretty much anybody, called uh, Muhammad Ali when the surprise lighting of, of the Olympic torch. He rated that as number one Olympic moment. I will say that that was pretty cool, and I know that's kind of when he really started his hardcore decline uh, with the Parkinson's disease and everything. And uh, he had a somewhat similar moment a few years later, and it was one of those, okay, why? Um, when the previous owner of the Miami Marlins opened the new Marlins Park, he had Muhammad Ali, quote-unquote, throw the first pitch out and it was basically a an extremely disabled Muhammad Ali riding a golf cart out to the mound and very very gingerly handing the ball to somebody instead of throwing it and 
it was an extremely awkward moment because it's like, um, what does Miami have to do with Muhammad Ali and vice versa? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't see the connection at all. I mean, it, it really was a um, okay. Um, why, why are we dragging a doddering Muhammad Ali out here? And it was, it was more sad than anything, to be quite honest. Yeah, I mean, when you think about today, how a lot of sport that has become very political, Muhammad Ali was really the forerunner for that, and he he went places a lot of guys didn't, and. I think what's happening now is there's been like makeup calls now for the people who didn't recognize his brilliance at the time. I guess you could say better late than never, but when you think about what Ali had to go through, it would have been better if they could have understood where he was coming from back then. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it was still very nice to see him do the Olympic torch lighting. And like you said, it was a shock to everybody because there was there was no reveal of who was going to do it. And it, it feels like these day, this day and age, almost everything is spoiled by the internet. But that, back then, you didn't have that. And he received a replacement gold medal for his uh, victory in the 1960 Summer Olympics. Mm, I did not know that. Can you guess what event he won his gold medal in? Um, I'm going to go with the bobsled. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> Uh, probably the other most famous thing from the Olympics, aside from just the, all the marketing and everything else was of course the Centennial Olympic Park bombing, which in the name of marketing, they didn't even stop the games. Um, so you gotta, you gotta give it up there. Somebody was killed in a bombing at the Olympics and they're like, well, we got to keep them going. That, you know, actually, when you look back at it, this Olympics really was, ahead of its time because now that we live in the era of sponsored content and native advertising and any time anybody has any interest in any type of object or service at any moment it must be hyper marketed and capitalized you know this kind of did it first but um i'll, I'll let you uh, tell the story of the bombing and the and how it did not get in the way of crass commercialization well, well, basically, in the heart of downtown Atlanta, they had built Centennial Olympic Park, which is pretty much like the big gathering spot uh, that you have. You know, one of the first modern day centralized, hey, all the fans come out and check things out with, for the ancillary things that are going on besides the games. They're on July 27th, 1996. They are having a free concert as they do at many of these events. And some crazy asshole decided to plant a pipe, a uh, backpack with three pipe bombs in it. Pretty much all hell broke loose from there. You had a security guard by the name of Richard Jewell, who became the hero, then the villain, then the hero again, and kind of had his life ruined by it. He finds the bag and alerts the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. They're able to clear a bunch of people away, but it still exploded and ended up killing a 44-year-old woman by the name of Alice Hawthorne. And another man had a fatal heart attack running to the scene. And 111 people ended up being injured. But it really could have been worse because this was planted to do the maximum amount of damage in a large crowd of several thousand people. Uh, but unfortunately, you have the news media, which they have clearly 
and just learn from this. And they have these rigorous, strict standards now that they will report only the facts. And at first, he was a hero for discovering the bomb. And then later, they uh, portrayed him as a suspect. And he was briefly, Richard Jewell was named as a person of interest, never arrested. But they ended up searching his home. And he kind of was vilified for something he ended up not doing. (laughs) And a lot of it was because of the news media in their hasty judgment to present somebody as the perpetrator of this, they went with the, well, of course he knew where it was. He's the one that planted it and all of this other stuff that came out. But as I said, now the news media would never do that at all. No, everything is very strict. There's a lot of rigorous guidelines in place when it comes to journalism. So they'll never make that mistake again. And it's all thoroughly resourced research before it's reported and there is no opinion injected into it whatsoever yeah it looks like he had <clears throat> five different libel cases versus piedmont college versus nbc versus the new york post versus cox enterprises that holding company for the atlanta journal constitution and versus cnn and that reminds me of one of my all-time favorite movie lines um you've seen top secret I take it. Oh, yes. Klaus is a moron who only knows what he reads in the New York Post. (laughs) So I would admit you'd be a a very stupid human being if only things you ever learned were in the New York Post. Right. Yeah, I mean, how talk about just somebody that you could... I mean, once you can't unring that bell, like, yeah, he was cleared later, but, I mean, how do you... You can't take all that stuff back. And I'm looking here on his page, and when you have Jay Leno at the time calling him the unit doofus and basically making fun of him on The Tonight Show, it's just the poor guy was dragged through the mud for doing his job. Yeah, for being a hero. And that really kind of overshadows um, this Olympics in, in my mind. Like, this is kind of the event that, that most people remember. And they didn't even find the guy that actually did it, uh, Eric Rudolph, until seven years later. <laughs> and when I, when I was recently in D.C., I ended up at the museum uh, going through that. And it had a pretty good exhibit on the Atlanta bombing and how the narrative around, around poor Richard Jewell was shaped by the media just kind of losing its mind. And then... Also, the manhunt and how they were finally able to catch Rudolph, too. And they had some of his artifacts there. Rudolph was basically this, uh, just as I said before, a crazy asshole that decided to... uh, (laughs) He later bombed an abortion clinic and a lesbian nightclub in the Atlanta area. uh, Bombed another abortion clinic in Birmingham that killed a uh, police officer working as a security guard. And he was later found like in the backwoods of North Carolina... Yeah, when he was on the 10 most wanted list. So here's a guy that for seven years got away with it. And part of it was likely because uh, the heat was taken off of him due to uh, Richard Jewell. Due to the trial by media, as it's called. And, you know, this was actually when that I um, like OJ Simpson, Tanya Harding, um, maybe like Lorena Bobbitt. You could qualify her in this category, too. This was when that boom began of the round-the-clock coverage, wall-to-wall, days, weeks on end kind of stories. And Richard Jewell was one of them. Yeah, and of course it all got, it all uh, 
ramped up to, oh, and it looks like we're actually going to get a movie on this with uh, Jonah Hill to play Richard Jewell. Interesting. Oh, I would see that, definitely. And Leo DiCaprio's going to play his attorney? Uh, no, now it's Sam Rockwell, but wow. <laughs> I did not know that movie was coming. Clint Eastwood direct is set to be the producing or directing it. Oh, uh, this is still in the pre-production, I think. But I kind of feel sorry for the guy, and he ended up dying at only age 44 in 2007 because of diabetes and heart failure. And you got to wonder how much the stress of everything that he was going on from this, you know, kind of led to that. Right. I mean, you said another man died from a heart attack running away from the blast. Uh, it was a cameraman that was running to it. It was a cameraman from Turkey. Yeah, but, but you know, it, it's true. I mean, the stress and, and wear and terror of what, I mean, no doubt, you know, no matter what you're going through health-wise, you know, a positive attitude and, and being and that'll help you deal with it. And when you're, you're carrying other mental and psychological stress. It's as Otis is chiming in on, he, he knows, you know, it, it's just unfortunate. And I'm glad that they were able to catch the guy that did it. And he is now serving a life sentence in the supermax prison out in Florence, Colorado. So uh, as I've said before, you know, screw that guy. <laughs> yeah. Justice was served eventually. Eventually, yes. Uh, so what other, you know, kind of things that we can more make fun of from this Olympics are out there? They're definitely the forerunner of, of white elephants. I mean, that's kind of exploded now. The idea of, of these low-use, one-time-use facilities that just sit there. Oh, absolutely. And, and it really, it's kind of impressive what they were able to do with the main Olympic Stadium because... They had some of the stands were designed to be taken down, and it later became the Atlanta Braves Stadium and has since been retrofit again to uh, be the home football stadium for Georgia State University. And it's, it's just nice that they've been able to repurpose that. But like you said, some of the other ones out there were really white elephants that can't be used very often. Like Athens 2000 and. 2004 where there's just this moss growing and weeds growing all over the place for softball stadiums that were used for you know three or four games um rio with the world cup they built these soccer stadiums and now after 2016 what's going to become of that i actually um worked for and this is in 2008 it's called the olympic channel it was like a blogging group of you know, they brought some lifestyle bloggers and they, they brought me in for sports stuff. And um, they had like another guy who kind of his specialty was ecology and, and the environment. And I just remember thinking, you know, this this would not be a win for Chicago to get 2016 because we were in that final four. We were the final U.S. I believe we were, I believe we were the last one standing among the U.S., I believe so, yeah, because I know it ultimately went to Rio, but I do remember seeing a lot of, there was a very, very big push to have it there in Chicago, and I want to say, and don't quote me on this at all, but I want to say that there were a couple of uh, venues outside of Chicago that they were considering for some of the soccer matches as they do to spread them around, and I think one of them was Notre Dame Stadium, and I want to say maybe another was Lambeau Field. Ryan Field at Northwestern was up there, too. 
And yeah, yes, you are correct about that. And the plan for the Olympic Stadium was to go to Washington Park and build a very large facility, which would then be stripped down to a small theater. And then there was a push, the idea of, well, how you make this giant big stadium. Because um, I don't for some reason, I guess, new Soldier Field. Because, yeah, it was, yeah, the Soldier Field renovation was in 2003. Wasn't up to standards. So there was this idea that a second NFL team, which is something <laughs> that, you know, the demand is there. Because the Bears have their crazy PSLs and waiting lists. But the Bears, the Bears are basically, you know, they're, they're like the mafia in that they'll stamp that out. There, there will never be a second NFL team in Chicago. Uh, with Soldier Field, it wasn't big enough to hold a track around it, and that's one of the main things as well. Yes, that was it. That's right. It's not wide. There is no track. You're correct. And if you think about it, one of the one of the things that really stands out is the United States and many of its larger cities kind of are perfect for the Olympic Games and not having as many of the white elephant ones because it's so sports crazy here. You look at the Los Angeles bid in 2028 because you have USC, UCLA, the new football stadium being built there, the Coliseum, the the uh, separate the separate soccer stadium, uh, Dodger Stadium and everything else, they kind of have everything already set for an Olympics to where it can be almost slightly repurposed and then reused. So it's almost better to be in a Los Angeles, a city that is kind of built for it, rather than, oh, hey, let's give the Olympics to Rio and then uh, wonder why all their stuff is falling apart immediately after because it's not being used. This is why no one's bidding for Olympic Games anymore. Right, and that's kind of where I was going with that, was um, when we didn't get it, I cheered and was happy. And someone was like, yeah, but you worked on this or, or volunteered. I'm like, dude, did you guys not realize when you were doing this that this is not a reward? Like, working on it and researching it, I'm like, you're, no one wins the Olympics anymore these days. Maybe back in the day, but I, I don't see it as a good thing. Right, and... You know, I think it'll be fine in Los Angeles because I'm looking at the Los Angeles page right now. Most of the venues are actually already built between like USC and UCLA, and maybe those two get like some new dorms or anything. But what's Athens going? What's Athens going to do with a baseball field? Or you know, you look at the Winter Olympics and anything and all that, and that's even more specialized. And it's like, oh great, now we have a luge track. You know how often luge just packs in the people? <laughs> it's what I've always wanted in my city. I've always wanted a speed skating velodrome. <laughs> from from what I've I've read from people who are a lot smarter than me and know a lot more about this stuff, every Olympics brings uh, three things: uh, police brutality, you know, to clean things up and to make it, you know, everything look nice, nice. Uh, gentrification and uh, corruption. Oh man, and... Los Angeles already has a head start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got you got about ten years and nine years, Juan. You can get in on that grift early and retire. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a good fit for Rio. Would have been um, well here. We definitely have the police brutality and the gentr. Well, no, we've got all three here too. 
So uh, it, it's interesting to see. It is, the Summer Olympics have not been back in the United States since. Uh, as you mentioned, Chicago was a finalist in 2016. I want to say that New York was in 2012. And they were trying to get Boston for 2020 or 2024. And I like how even people in Boston are like, do you realize how freaking crazy you are to try and have the Olympics in Boston? <laughs> Put it where all the streets are not on a grid, and unless you live there, it's impossible to remember where which turnpike goes. Exactly. I just thought it was great that you had the city leaders of Boston are like, let's do this, and the people of, the people of Boston are like, are you out of your f***ing mind? <laughs> and that was my horrible Boston accent. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm surprised we even went as far as we did tonight with this one. That's what she said. <laughs> Thank you, Juan. Well, that is a that is a tough accent to do, though, to be fair. Uh, I, I, I can't do it, and I'm not going to try again. I, I'm an expert at making fun of myself and making an ass of myself, but even I have a limit. <laughs> well, I guess this is the time of the night where we talk about the next episode. Yes, uh, what what did you have for the next episode? Well, we're actually um, going to go back to um, old-timey baseball, except it's a different era. Now we're into the, the Depression era. And for those of you loyal listeners who recall, if you liked the Rube Waddell podcast, then we're going to bring you the man who was once described by a newspaper as the rubiest rube of all rubes, and that is... Hall of Famer Hack Wilson. Ah, yes. The 1930s. What did Homer Simpson say about... <laughs> I'm sure those worked in the country was doing great back then. <laughs> and watch out for that Adolf Hitler. He's a bad egg. <laughs> but no, Hack Wilson was a man who liked the drink a little bit too much to the point where the Cubs tipped off the feds because this is during Prohibition, to raid a speakeasy. Teach him a, a hard lesson. And Hack is one of the classic examples of a star that burned really hot and really bright and just burned out very fast because 191 RBIs in the season is a record that's probably never going to be touched. But he died quite young, working as a towel boy at a community pool in Baltimore. Wow. I know that. And back to Baltimore, where we discussed earlier. Exactly. Yeah, all roads lead to Baltimore. And we'll go over his drinking and his beating up his teammates and all the other crazy stuff he did on the next episode. Absolutely. So, uh, as as Paul said, uh, if you like the roof, you'll love Hack Wilson on the next Let's Get Weird Sports. So, for Paul and Travis Miller, we thank you for listening and tune in next time to hear more about Hack Wilson.